the faith that leads to fidelity. Here, actually, week eight. Well, let me tell you this amazing story. I'll start here. It's an amazing story that comes from a book entitled A Million Ways to Die, The Only Way to Live by Rick James. And I don't think that's the singer, Rick James. <laughs> if anybody knows Rick James, the singer is some reggae dude, I think. A poor garbage man's example. As the story goes in 1972, and let me put a picture on the screen here. Um, so there's one picture, I got a couple. As the story goes in 1972, a young Egyptian businessman lost his wristwatch valued at roughly $11,000. That's some wristwatch. It's amazing that anyone who found it in the rough and tumble city of Cairo would have attempted to return it, and it's shocking who did. The city of Cairo has its own unique version of poverty called the garbage city, right there on your screen. A city in the sense that an ant farm is a city. The population of the slum lies somewhere between 15 and 30,000 people, though no one really knows for sure. Its name comes from the fact that it is both a garbage dump and home for the city's garbage workers. Each morning at dawn, some 7,000 garbage collectors on horse carts leave for Cairo where they collect the many tons of garbage left behind by the city's 17 million waste-producing citizens. After their day's work, they return to the garbage city, bringing the trash back to their homes, sorting out what's useful, and leaving in and among what isn't. In Muslim countries, there are certain religious restrictions on sifting through refuse, so the inhabitants of the garbage city are either non-religious or some kind of Christian heritage, typically Coptic. These are the poorest of the poor outcasts uh, among outcasts. As you can imagine, it would be unthinkable to have such a valuable timepiece returned by a member of Garbage City. Yet when the wealthy businessman lost his watch, an old garbage man dressed in rags returned it, saying, my Christ told me to be honest until death. And so just a few pictures of Garbage City there and a couple kids that live in Garbage City. Um, Kind of sad reality, right, in its own sense. But what, a, what an amazing story of faithfulness. And we'll talk about that today, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness and self-control. And we will uh, complete this series in about three weeks, probably. It looks like we'll probably be through this series. But here's the thing, week eight of this series, and today's flavor, as I said, is faithfulness. Now, when you think about faithfulness and We've talked about in this series again, right, that there is like one core fruit, it's love, and then everything else is like a flavor of love. So, so faithfulness is just another flavor of this love, which this will be significant. I'll show you a verse in a moment that will add another layer to the fruit of the Spirit and to this concept of these being flavors of love that I think is pretty powerful. But, but what a rea rea reality that in this series we're looking at not just, you know, what, 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 what it means to be a faithful person, but what does it look like in the theological sense, when I bear the spiritual fruit of faithfulness, when the Spirit of Christ is seen through my faithfulness, or when my faithfulness is tied back to Him. I wonder how would you deny, define faithfulness this morning? Now, the truth is, the word faithfulness here is the very common Greek word pistis. It's found countless times throughout the New Testament, it's all over the place. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Uh, verses such as that, uh, for you have been saved through faith, by grace, you have been, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and all of these verses that talk about faith in this sense. But the word here for the fruit of the Spirit has a very uh, specific and distinct, distinct flavor in its own right. And we see that in the Thayer's lexicon, where it tells us that this word faithfulness really focuses in, in on fidelity. There's like five or six verses in the New Testament that zero in on this concept of faithfulness, meaning fidelity, or trustworthy, some commentaries say. It's the character of one who can be counted or relied on and so that's what we're talking about today this element of faithfulness that is really a fidelity a faithfulness that is a fidelity and today's big idea this is really where the root of the message comes right here my fidelity is an expression of God's faithfulness so we're going to look today at this as a fruit again not a work of my flesh but a fruit of the spirit that I bear and my personal fidelity as a believer is ultimately an expression of God's faithfulness to me. 
pretty powerful stuff to think about. The, the best way, if we want to really understand fidelity, though, the best way probably is through its counterpart, right? Infidelity. Like that word kind of rings a little more and we relate infidelity and unfaithfulness maybe in the context of a marriage relationship. That's one way we might relate to this word because we don't often talk about fidelity and what it looks like. But we're going to talk about it today and it's going to be pretty powerful and we're going to see again that this faithfulness, this fidelity is not, again, a work that I do. It is a fruit that I bear. It's not a verb. Again, it's a noun. It is something I possess. It is an expression of my very identity in Christ. My fidelity is rooted in my identity and we want to see that today. That's where the sermon title comes from, the faith that leads to fidelity in God it is God's faith in me and toward me that is then expressed through me it's his faith that leads to my fidelity now don't forget the big idea of this whole series just one more time really is that the spiritually fruitful life is the abundant life the more joy the more peace the more patience in my life the more abundant my life will be and that applies to faithfulness and fidelity the more faithful I am in my life to uh, in, in my private life to the people around me the God, the more faithful I am, the more fruitful and more abundant my life will be. I just want us to rethink this morning this idea of faithfulness. And I want us to see it as the expression of the Spirit of Christ in my life. Not just something that I am doing all on my own. Although, yes, there's choices I make to be faithful. Clearly that is the case. But we want to see this as a fruit and what that looks like. So the question I have this morning for us as we start, we're going to define this real briefly here in just three simple ways and then get to the heart of the message. But I wonder where in your life do you want to see yourself be more faithful? Where do you want to have more fidelity in your personal life, in your relationship with God, with the people around you? What, is, what does that look like for you if you were a more faithful person in life? Think about that. Here's three simple ways that we can can define it this morning as we think about how we can express more faithfulness in our life every day. Three simple ways here. Defining faithfulness or defining fidelity. Look at it here. Faithfulness is moral excellence winning out. It is moral excellence winning out in a world where integrity is in great demand, right? In a world where we have kind of morphed over to what Isaiah said, where good is evil and evil is good. In a world today, we need to be people of moral excellence. We need to be people like that individual there in Garbage City who will return the wristwatch. And, and what an amazing story when you're so poor and you have the opportunity. That's your job. You, you collect people's trash. It's like, hey, this is mine. This is my job. It's my payday today. And yet, moral excellence wins out. It is genuine love hanging on. I think I heard this someplace sometime. It's always stuck with me. Faithfulness is genuine love hanging on and, and no one defines this better than Christ, right? Genuine love hanging on, on the cross, hanging on. Hanging on all the way through the empty tomb. And the Bible repeatedly tells us that God is faithful. We'll see that today over and over again in various passages. We'll see that. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so the old hymn does say it best, right? Great is your faithfulness. And it's that faithfulness that will then influence my own personal faithfulness and fidelity in life. Nowhere is the faithfulness of God more clearly seen, vividly seen, right, than through the gospel, through the cross, and through the empty tomb. The gospel shouts the faithfulness of God. The gospel shouts out that God said he would send someone back in the days of Adam and Eve. He told Abraham he would send somebody, and he did. And we are so grateful today that Christ has come it is, it is like, the, the gospel is like the exclamation points on the faithfulness of God, where there's no place where love is more vividly seen hanging on than when Christ is hanging on the cross. Look at this here. Paul writing to, this is fascinating, writing to a, a, a very immature group of believers at Corinth. And they're saved. You'll see in the passage they're saved, but they are severely compromised, struggling with sin. And look what he writes. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God, that was given you in Christ Jesus. They were given God's grace. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. 
so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to this. Who will sustain you to the end? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so even when we struggle with sin, even when we get taken captive at times by the world and get deceived, God is faithful to me. And, and it would seen in the fact that he faithfully sustains me. Like once he comes to live in me, once I am saved, once I am set apart, once I am in Christ, nothing can take away that relationship I have with God and he will sustain me even when I struggle there's another verse and I mentioned this a moment ago I stumbled on this verse a couple years ago I love this verse and it's one of those verses that can seem like a little throwaway verse you know it's just like a little casual comment at the end of Ephesians as Paul is saying goodbye in his letter but no there there are no throwaway verses in the scripture there are no afterthoughts in the Bible Ephesians 6 23 peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all, speaking to us, who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Some translations say like, with an undying love or an undecaying love. Did you know that? That you have a love for God as a believer, as a Christian. You have a love for God and from God that is incorruptible, that is undying, that is eternal. Now, stop a minute. And apply that to the fruit of the Spirit. The core fruit of the Spirit is what? It's this love that is incorruptible and undying. It's buried in us. We can never lose this love. We can only nurture this love. It can only produce greater and greater fruit and sweeter and sweeter fruit like faithfulness. And so there's this faithfulness that I can bear in my life that is really a byproduct of this incorruptible love. God is so faithful. That's that's the love of God. That's how faithful God is to me. It's what he's done in my life. So faithfulness is this moral excellence winning out. It's genuine love hanging on and it is Christ alone being crucified or Christ alone being lifted up. I have an incorruptible and undying love for God. Faithfulness is Christ alone being lifted up in my life every single day. It is so easy to be tempted to to exalt other things in our life. It is so easy to fill our emotional and uh, spiritual cup with other things and other people than Christ, but he needs to be my total existence. Anytime I trust something or someone more than Christ, anytime I exalt anyone over Christ, that's, in a sense, not being faithful, right? Right? He is the one who deserves our praise. He alone is absolutely trustworthy. Maybe you remember this verse from back in January. We started the year with this verse over here, right? Oh, I didn't put it on the screen. Um, Right here, Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We talked about that back in January, right? That God will be far more faithful to me than I will ever be to him. And why don't I just rest on his faithfulness and let his faithfulness then drive my own faithfulness in return? How about that amazing, amazing reality? Again, my fidelity is an expression of God's faithfulness. And we will see today just how faithful God is to us every single day. The faithfulness of God then that sustains me even as I struggle sometimes to live out my faith, to be a, to be, to be, to be a person of faith, there's the, the faithfulness of God sustaining me. It's rooted in this incorruptible love. It's an amazing thing. And we're going to look at five lessons from Jesus' temptation. A couple of them at the end, just very briefly, we'll just touch on them. But look at this this morning, Luke chapter 4. We're not going to read the whole thing again, but, but look at the first two verses. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And our first lesson is simply this. The faithful one had his faithfulness tested. The faithful one had his faithfulness tested. This is a fascinating story, the temptation of Jesus. It really is. 
He has just left the Jordan River. He has just been baptized to kick off his public ministry and he's going to spend the first 40 days of ministry preparing even more as he goes into the wilderness. And it's not so much that he's led into the wilderness to be tempted. Uh, It seems like many commentators kind of think he went into the wilderness to be instructed like about his ministry. To, to spend some time alone with the Father and, and, and get some deeper insights into the next three plus years of ministry. But the truth is, while he's there, Satan certainly tempts him. And it looks like he is tempted for the whole of the 40 days. And what we have here are just kind of like the, it's like the climax of this temptation. The Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges says this, the present participle implies that the temptation was continuous throughout the 40 days, though it reached its most awful climax at the close. And so Jesus is tempted for these 40 days. And it's not abnormal, like Moses, was, was, he fasted for 40 days. There's others in, in the Bible that fasted. It's not something that you can't do without supernatural intervention. As a human, you can fast for 40 days. There's different types of fasts. I've heard of people doing that in modern times. And so Jesus fasts and he prepares himself for the ministry. But here's what's fascinating. We often talk about Jesus being the God of a hundred names, right? Revelations 19.11, Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. One of Jesus' names is he is Faithful and True. But here's the thing, when he goes into the wilderness here and is tempted for 40 days, what you have to understand is that he is, he is truly God, right? He is truly faithful and true, but he's also truly man. He's, he's entirely God, he's, in, he's entirely man. And as he goes in to this temptation, we need to understand this. That the one who is truly God and truly man faced temptation as a man and remained faithful. Like, Like we often talk about that that illustration, I use it a lot, that God didn't use his God card, right? That he didn't use his, his, his divine privileges on earth to navigate life, to have an unfair advantage over life. And so like in this instance, what this means is that Jesus wasn't tempted by Satan and he didn't pull out his God card and say, ha, you can't tempt me, I am faithful and true. No. In fact, we know that he's tempted as a man. How do we know he's tempted as a man in this story? It's real obvious. At the end of the 40 days, he's what? He's hungry. I don't think God gets hungry. But he's hungry. As a man, he's hungry. He is is facing the kind of temptation that you and I will face in our own life. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so basically, this is just telling us that because Jesus was tempted as we are, this should give us confidence to go before the throne of grace, to go before God in prayer when we're struggling in our own life and just know that he can sympathize with us and that he will show incredible grace and mercy to us in our own daily struggles. So what a great thing. And at the same time, we can look how Jesus handled his own temptation. We'll see that today. And we'll just see how he was faithful. The faithful one had his faithfulness tested and he remained faithful. But he was tested and he was tempted as we will see as a man. As a man. Again, here he is. He's he's led by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit and he goes into the wilderness. And that's our second point here, right? God is faithful in my wilderness testings. In my wilderness testings, God is faithful. And we can really... Most of us can relate to this, right? We understand this concept of going through seasons, wilderness seasons in our life where our faith is tested. We see this throughout the Bible. Job and Joseph and Moses and Ruth and Esther and David and Elijah, all these great heroes of the faith had their own seasons in the wilderness, did they not? And in fact, part of the reason they are heroes of faith is because they went through that wilderness season. That's how God developed their faith. It's pretty amazing. Now, when we go through a wilderness season, we need to have two, just understand there are two distinct perspectives to be aware of. And one is Satan's perspective. He wants to destroy my faith. That's what he wants to do to Jesus, and that's what he wants to do to us in the wilderness. He wants to destroy our faith. He wants to shipwreck my faith. 
Paul understood this, right? Writing to Timothy, he said this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. He says, cling to your faith in another translation. Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear so that your faith is not made shipwreck. And there were those that, Jesus, that, that Paul encountered that that's exactly what happened to them. We need to understand, <clears throat> we need to understand that Satan will never let a crisis go to waste in our life. Anytime we're in a crisis, he's going to use that to try to destroy us and try to bring us down. In fact, I would contend there are people today, there are people living today that have been through things in the past that they just have not been able to deal with that is affecting their faith and their life today. And we we need to be aware of that. When we go into these seasons, Satan wants to use us against me. But the other perspective is real clear as well. God's perspective, he wants to build my faith. He wants to build my faith. It's interesting to watch the progression of Jesus in this, in this passage. And I don't think this is by accident. I think it's to teach us something, right? And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And at the end of 40 days, he leaves after 40 days and he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a great report about him went out throughout the throughout all the surrounding country. Again, this is evidence that Jesus here is, 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 is facing this as a man because he comes in full of the Holy Spirit and he leaves in the power of the Spirit. Like Jesus was empowered by the Spirit. I mean, Jesus as God does not need to be empowered by the Spirit. He's God. But as a man, he needs. And this is how he operates throughout his earthly ministry, through the power of the Spirit, under the authority of the Father. So we see the trajectory here and and how this can work for us in our life. We go through a wilderness season, we walk through it with the Holy Spirit, we can come out of that season even stronger and more on fire for Christ. The Bible looks at our faith in various ways. It looks at it as a muscle that can become stronger. It looks at it as a walk that can carry us through the darkness and it it, it relates to it as as a fruit that we can bear that can grow sweeter and sweeter and sweeter over time. And and again, don't forget the big idea in this whole series, right? That the more fruitful my life is, the more abundant my life will be. So that the sweeter this fruit is and the more abundant this fruit is in my life, the more abundant my life will be. And that applies, of course, to this this issue of faith and fidelity that God is producing in my life. You know, one of the most popular verses in the Bible is is this verse, Romans 8, 28. Most of you probably know it by heart. You know, you, you Google online, you, you pick a topic online, you Google, you know, verses on this topic, and you can do that. There's all kinds of topics you can research. This makes every list. Even when it doesn't fit in the list, it makes the list. It's like everybody includes this verse. But I'll give you the verse that follows. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those who he, whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of of his son and so we go through all things in life and and all things are for our good uh, to grow our faith to build our faith to make our, our our faith even sweeter and he does that so we would be conformed to the image of his son so we would be more like the one who is faithful and true that's what God wants to do. And when you're going through these, these challenging times in life, that is, is exactly what God is up to. So Satan wants to shipwreck your faith. And God wants to grow your faith. Look at another passage here again. 2 Thessalonians 3. But the Lord is faithful. We're going to see it repeatedly just in the passages today. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And so we have a great picture here really that as Satan attacks, the Father protects. As Satan attacks us and comes at us, the Father protects us. And the greater point here again is that our personal fidelity will be tested in these wilderness seasons. It will be tested. So when you go through a season like that, just be aware of that. I mean, I'm in this wilderness season. Satan wants to shipwreck my faith. God wants to grow my faith. 
So Satan may tempt you and God may allow him to test you, but that's all he can do. You, you have this incorruptible love that, that ultimately can't be taken from you. He can't shipwreck your faith unless you allow him to. But God most certainly will grow your faith if you trust in him. And can I just add this, that there are, are things we go through in life. We won't know the value of some of our wilderness experiences until we reach heaven someday. Someday in heaven in glory, then we're going to look back and we're going to say, wow, now I know why I went through what I went through. But we may not know that here in this world. God is faithful in my wilderness testing, right? God is faithful in my wilderness testing. Again, my fidelity is an expression of God's faithfulness. So as God is faithful to me in the wilderness season, he is growing my own faith, my own ability to be faithful and to express fidelity throughout my life. Here's a third lesson. Well, look at this verse here. One of the most prominent New Testament verses on temptation. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken, overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You may be able to endure it. So think about this. God is faithful in my everyday temptation. God is faithful within my everyday temptation. Just as the Spirit was with Jesus and led him through the wilderness and led him through 40 days of temptation, God will be with us. He will lead us through these seasons of life as well. It's, it's an amazing thing. I want to look at another insightful passage. There are just so many of these here. But, but thinking about this verse here in 1 Corinthians, just, just unpacking it a little deeper, we see the faithfulness of God in this. He says, God is faithful as we're tempted. And we see that because he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. He knows how much we can stand. He knows how much we can bear. He will not let us suffer any more than that. And then he is faithful because he promises a way of escape. And I'll show you that towards the end of the message. What's this escape hatch when I am tempted? What's, what's this ability? What's this way to get out of, to, to endure the temptation until I can get out of it? We'll see that at the end of the message. But just note this, but God is also faithful because Jesus has experienced our temptations. He has experienced exactly what we are going through. He knows what it's like. He, he can sympathize with us. He has grace for us when we are tempted. And that made me stop and think then about, well, the, here's a simple reality check. All temptation is common to man, including Jesus. Jesus knows your temptation, knows my temptation. And the temptation here, there's, there's three simple ways that it's defined as we tie it back to Adam and Eve in the, in the garden and the original temptation. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So that's the commonality of temptation. All temptation falls somewhere within the parameters of those three issues. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. But I'm going to give it to you in, a, in even more relatable ways today. Five ways that we can look at this real briefly here and we can see the kind of temptation that we may face. And, and some of these may sound different than what you've seen in the past or heard in the past. But verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stones to become bread. And this one's very relatable, right? We are tempted to satisfy fleshly desires. We're tempted to satisfy fleshly desires. Not that it's always wrong to satisfy our hunger. But there's an interesting context here, right, where Jesus is physically hungry at the end of 40 days, but he is spiritually full and empowered. It's, it's an amazing thing. And for us, many times, isn't it reverse, right? We are spiritually full, but we are, I mean, we are physically full, but we are spiritually hungry. There's a, there's a video I shared years ago, and I'm going to rerun it this morning. It just fits in so well here and speaks to this better than I can. Watch this. I woke up this morning with a normal feeling for me. It felt like sadness, but more like hunger than anything else. The closest word for it is empty. Whatever the feeling was, I wanted it to go away. Within an hour of waking up, this feeling's usually gone. Coffee can do it, catching up on sports, and by the time I check my email, I'm good. At least I'm full for the present. The feeling 
Whatever it was is gone. But quite easily, I slip back into the emptiness. If not the next hour, the next day. Technology gives me the quickest, most instantly gratifying fill. That's why I like social media. All I really need is one like on Instagram, and I'm golden. Facebook can do it too, as long as it's about me. And I look on Twitter to get my sarcasm fill for the day. It doesn't really take much, but it doesn't really last long either. If social media doesn't do it, music always fills me up, especially when I'm driving. I got my tunes, the open road, and I can listen to whatever I want. I rock the same songs over and over again. I was empty. Now I'm filled. I have millions of ways to fill up. I didn't even mention TV, movies, or beach vacations, alcohol, cars, home improvements, accolades at work. Whatever I want, I can have it. With the touch of a button or the drop of a hat, the world is at my fingertips. I can fill myself with whatever I want, cash pending. All I have to do is convince myself that it's good to eat and desirable for food. Then it's just a matter of plucking my choice fruit from the tree. No wonder I don't need God to be filled. I'm already full. I mean, how relatable is that, right? All the stuff that can fill up our lives and fill up our souls, fill up our, that illustration of what fills up your emotional cup or what fills up your spiritual cup in life and all the things we can fill up on and then we, of course, yeah, we're not hungry for the Lord, are we? How many times does that not describe our life or some of the people around us? We can be tempted. And another oh-so-common temptation here, look at verses 5 and 6, and, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, for you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. We can be tempted in life to take shortcuts, Right? I mean, think about it. Everything he's offering to Jesus is, is going to ultimately be his. He's going to rule over the entire world. But when he rules over the world, it'll be redeemed. It'll, it'll, be, um, it'll be made new. The curse of sin will be broken. And so he just has to be faithful and hang on and do the work of the cross, do the work to bring restoration and redemption and to break that curse of sin. He has to do that. And then he can have all of the, the kingdoms, all the glory of ruling over everything. But we're tempted sometimes to take these shortcuts and thankfully Jesus wasn't. Have you ever taken one of those shortcuts in life? You know, you, you're on a map and you think, oh, there's a shortcut here and it was like a mistake. It's like shortcuts are never, not, I shouldn't say never, but you know, in life, in the, in the reality of life, they, they never really are beneficial to us, maybe driving sometimes. We can be tempted in life to take shortcuts and avoid the necessary work to grow our own faith, to help others grow theirs, and to leave our eternal mark on this world. In the end, if I take shortcuts, I will have much less, a much less fruitful life, and the fruit I bear will simply not be as sweet. We all know that fruit takes time to develop on the vine or the tree. It takes time to become rich and sweet, so don't take shortcuts in life. Your life will not be as abundant. Verse 7, another oh-so-common temptation. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. You can have all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just worship me. And sometimes we are tempted to misplace our worship, aren't we? Like we, we get caught up in worshiping things that don't deserve our worship. And this can be very subtly. It can happen over time and things just seep into our life and we worship a relationship or we worship a hobby or we worship our career. or we Again, what is filling up our emotional and, and our relational and our spiritual cups? when it needs to be God, when it needs to be those spiritual things. Sometimes, even in the ministry, you, you know, you can, um, you can worship the ministry. There are people today that worship, worship. There are people that worship the study of the Bible and, and we lose sight of the one who wrote the Bible and the personal relationship we can have with him. All the things that come along. 
Christ and Christ alone deserves our worship. The also common uh, temptations here again, verse 11. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Hmm. Well, sometimes we are tempted in life to test and not trust God. Sometimes we're we're, we're tempted to, to test God and not trust God. Sometimes we get upset with God because God doesn't operate the way we think he should. He doesn't do, he doesn't answer our prayer the way we think he should answer it. It's hard sometimes, I know, when God doesn't intervene in a situation the way we think he should, right? When he seems indifferent to suffering, God ever seem indifferent to suffering to you? It's like, where are you, Lord? And the reality is we know he's not because of the cross, because on the cross he joined us in our suffering. But, but it's not us. Who are we to ever tell God how he should carry out his business as God? Who are we? We need to trust him and never test him. There is one last oh so common temptation here, probably the greatest temptation that we face in our life today. It's found in two verses, in verses three and verse nine. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, and this is kind of phrased a little differently to us maybe, but the also common temptation is we are tempted to doubt our identity in Christ. We are. And, and he challenges Jesus on this front. Well, if you're the son of God, well, then prove it. There is, um, I read this week that there was some, maybe it was just a, uh, uh, what, what do you call it? A, um, can't think of a term, uh, some, some speculative idea, I can't think of the word for it here, but that when the Messiah came, he would come and he would do exactly what he told Jesus to do. He would go stand on the temple overlooking everything and they would know, there's the Messiah, he has shown up. They, ex- they kind of expected that and that, I don't think that was a biblical thing, but that was something they had written in themselves and he, te- he tempted Jesus to do just that. We are tempted though so many times when it comes to our identity in Christ just like Adam and Eve were in the garden right Adam and Eve in the garden I mean how were they tempted it's like you know if you just eat this forbidden fruit you will be like God's and of course that's the big lie because they were already like God their identity was already in Christ they were created in the image of God but think about it think about that right if you just eat this forbidden fruit you become like God's well who are the gods plural Satan You'll become just like me. That's what he's telling them. But they're already in, in God's image. They didn't need to buy the lie. And we, so often today, in the same way, are tempted to doubt who we really are in Christ and the fullness and the reality of all that Christ is in our own life. You know, there's another secret, little embedded truth here that's really powerful, though. You want to know what, what, what Satan is doing here? And I don't know if he understands what he's doing. I don't know if he's smart enough to, to understand what he's doing. But here's this, the little secret tactic I think that's at play here. Jesus was being tempted to play his God card. The very thing that would have rendered him, you know, unable to relate to us as humans. He was tempted, hey, if you're God, turn that bread into... Turn that stone into bread. Go stand on the mountain and declare that you're God and, 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 and just play your God card. Just prove to us you're God like he told him to do on the cross. And yet he was truly God, but he was truly man. And he was being carried through this by the Holy Spirit who empowered him, not his own personal divinity. He was, he was still God. He was still holding the universe together. But as a man, he was being a man, relating to our life one last thing here that's really fascinating can i just encourage you today that jesus is faithful on both sides of our temptation like if i'm on this side of temptation struggling with temptation trying to conquer temptation and what if i give in to temptation and i fail well god is over here and god is faithful to me even when i fall to temptation he has me covered on both sides of temptation and that is so amazing second timothy 2 11 speaking about the various relationships we can have with God. If we have died with him, if we've been crucified with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If if as a believer you suffer and you endure with Christ, you're going to reign with him in glory. It's just going to be probably a greater reigning in glory. 
If we deny him, he will also deny us. If you refuse Christ, he'll refuse you. And then if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. If I get taken captive by by the world, if I lose my way, if I become the prodigal, God remains faithful to me. And he keeps beckoning me back. Beckoning me back into his arms. For he cannot deny himself. Wow. My fidelity is an expression of God's faithfulness. So let's look here then. Two more. Again, what we see today so far, the faithful one had his faithfulness tested. God's faithful in my wilderness testings and God is faithful in my everyday temptation. And briefly, two more. God is faithful to me so I can be faithful to him. God is faithful to me so I can be faithful to him. And we spent a lot of time today talking about the faithfulness of God. We keep seeing that phrase over and over again. God is faithful. The Lord is faithful. Great is your faithfulness. Because my faithfulness is rooted in, my fidelity is rooted in how faithful God is to me. Let me give you one of my favorite verse of, of late. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. It's like the whole trinity is, I saw this this week again, another layer to this. Like the whole trinity is involved here. May, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, Jesus, sanctifies my spirit on the cross when he, when he comes out of the empty tomb and gives me his life. And my soul is sanctified, right? Every day. As, as I walk in the spirit and I am sanctified in my thoughts and my feelings and my choices and my behaviors. And then one day my body will be sanctified by the Father when I get my glorified body. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God is so faithful to you even when we are unfaithful, even when we struggle with sin and struggle with temptation. God is faithful. We need to know that. And again, my Personal fidelity is an expression of God's faithfulness to me. But there are two very important propositions here because God is faithful to me so I can be faithful to him. And there's two things you need to know about how Jesus handled his temptation. First, don't miss this, right? Jesus answers every temptation with scripture. So just read that on your own this week. Let's look through that. It's pretty fascinating. Every single temptation he faces of these three climax temptations, he responds to the devil with scripture. If you are tempted to doubt, find a scripture to answer your doubt. If you're tempted to fear, find a scripture to bring you peace. If you are tempted to complain, find a scripture to silence your complaint. If you are tempted to anger, find a scripture to calm your soul. If you are tempted to lust, find a scripture to reinforce your holiness. If you are tempted to pride, find a scripture to humble your perspective so what a great reality that jesus he dealt with this right through the spirit led by the spirit but he uses scripture so we know to use scripture to combat our own temptation our own struggles but how did you think did you ever think through how does jesus make it 33 plus years and never sin that's that's the over Overwhelming question. How was he faithful for 33 and a half years so he could go to the cross and then die for us? Verse 13 tells us that when Satan gave up on tempting Jesus, he gave up eventually. It's like, okay, this ain't going anywhere. I'm wasting my time. He waited, it says in verse 13, until another opportune time and to tempt him again. And that opportune time most likely was the night that he's in the garden praying that he's arrested the night before he goes to the cross and is crucified he's in the garden praying with peter and james and john and he says this watch and pray that put on your, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation the spirit indeed is willing and the flesh is weak the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak and so just let the holy spirit beef up your spirit so you're 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 empowered in the spirit to stand up to temptation Watch and pray. We could say prayer is another way to combat temptation along with the word. But how does Jesus make it for 33 years? And it's this great verse over in Timothy that really tells us. Speaking about Christ and his life, just kind of a quick snapshot. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, the mystery of Christ in the flesh, right? 
He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And vindicated by the Spirit, what does that mean? Well, some say, some translations say justified by the Spirit. Well, clearly Jesus wasn't justified like we are, like he was a, once a sinner and he's justified now. I, I think this really just means that he was declared, he was declared um, <clears throat> holy and righteous by the Spirit. And the Spirit because he walked in the Spirit, because he was led by the Spirit. It was the Spirit that kept him from sinning. It was the Spirit that kept him faithful. It was the Spirit that enabled him to go to the cross sinless and be our sacrifice. Not because he was God and he played his God card and said, I am faithful and true, I can never sin. No, he faced life like you and me. And yet it was the, it was the Spirit that kept him from sinning when he was on the earth. It was the spirit that empowered him. And that's our reality. Like you want to stand up to temptation in your life. You want to be faithful and true in your life. Just walk in the spirit. Just walk in the spirit. And of course that's the entire context of Galatians 5 and the fruit of the spirit, right? But I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Wow. How beautiful, how beautiful. How beautiful. Let me leave you with one last one. So don't miss the, the secret to Jesus' faithfulness was that he was vindicated and led by the Spirit. And he's led in the wilderness by the Spirit and he leaves full, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Here's our last one. God is faithful to me so I can be faithful to you. God then is faithful to me so I can be faithful to you, so I can be faithful in all of my relationships. And again, I'm not sure where you want to be more faithful in your life today. Maybe there's an area in your personal walk with God. Maybe there's a struggle in your private life. Maybe there is a personal relationship where you just want to be more faithful. You do, and you struggle. There are people that are hard to love. You've got an incorruptible love from God and for God that you can love the people around you. And it's not that you maybe aren't faithful to the people around you. You want to be more faithful. You want to be more faithful in supporting them and praying for them and caring for them. Just understand the love you have from the Father and know that your faithfulness and your fidelity to others truly matters. Don't take it lightly and be true first to God and then to those that God puts in your life. So I wonder this morning as we come to to close, what personal takeaways do you find in this sermon? When you look at the faithfulness of Jesus, what grabs your soul? One of the things maybe not emphasized enough was just how important the faithfulness of Christ was to you and me. Like we should know that, right? But just, yeah, we need to emphasize that again. And we, need, we needed someone like Jesus to come and show us the eternal truth of God and to put some flesh and blood on that old hymn, Great is Your Faithfulness. Like, Jesus is the flesh and blood that says, yes, God is faithful. But can I remind us all this morning then that as God's children, as citizens of heaven, great is the faithfulness buried within our own soul, just waiting to be nurtured, developed, and ripened into a fruit sweet enough for the whole world we have a faithfulness that god wants to use to impact this world for christ trust me your faith can make all the difference your personal fidelity might just mean the world to someone else it may even bless their eternity like the poor garbage man of garbage city in cairo in fact we pick up his story after after he returned the watch to this wealthy and totally shocked english businessman just listen listen to what happens here Because of this act of obedience, because of this act of obedience, faith, death, insanity, the Egyptian businessman later told the reporter, I didn't know Christ at the time, but I told the garbage man, excuse me, but I told the garbage man that I saw Christ in him. I told him because of what you have done in your great example, I will worship the Christ you are worshiping. The man, true to his word, studied the Bible and grew in his faith. Soon he and his wife began ministering to Egypt's physically and spiritually poor, leading thousands to Christ. In 1978, he was ordained by the Coptic Orthodox Church and is now known as Father Saman. 
Father Saman leads the largest church of believers in the entire Middle East. Each week, some 10,000 believers meet together in a large cave outside the garbage city. And these 10,000 plus believers gather at least in part every week because of the personal fidelity of one man who returned a watch that wasn't his and shined a light on the cross, the Christ who is. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are so faithful. If we go home today with anything, may we go home and just know how faithful you are in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our own temptation, in the midst of our challenges, in our wilderness season, whatever happens, however we fall, you are faithful to us. When we are faithless, when our faith is teetering on the brink, when we're struggling, Lord, you are faithful. And the more that we come to terms with how faithful you are to us, then we can understand how faithful we can be to the people around us, how faithful we can be to you, how faithful we can be in our personal struggles. Open our eyes today to see in this message exactly what we need to see so we can apply it to our lives in profound ways. And may we, um, just like this man from Garbage City, may we reflect you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.